Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode, we'll discuss three major announcements coming out of Washington this week, including a fix to the Affordable Care Act's so-called family glitch, the Federal Reserve's seeming more aggressive approach on reducing its balance sheet, and a big shocker, yet another extension of the freeze on federal student loan repayments. Joining us to talk about all of this is AAF's Douglas Holtzagen. Doug, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me here, Kyle. Happy to be. Another fun, another fun week. And just as the tournament ends, you know, we get we're getting ready for the uh, um, uh, we're getting ready for you know the Masters and baseball. So how's everything been going? You know, hard to be hard to not be happy about that. Well, um, just so the listeners understand, Kyle brought this up just so I can uh, announce that he won the AAF March Madness uh, bracket competition. So congratulations, Kyle. Thank you. And um, looking forward to the Masters. Always always just a, a great show and uh, happy to have baseball back. Yeah, I was. I, I figured we'd get it out of the way in the beginning. So in case listeners, you know, start trailing off, we could, we could <laughs> get that in there. But anyways, let's jump into what we actually came here to talk about today. On Tuesday, President Biden... Um, joined by former President Obama, held a uh, press conference to celebrate the 12th anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. Um, the key news from the event seemed to be a proposal to fix the ACA's so-called family glitch. Um, would you remind us what uh, what this is and what we should know about the proposed fix? So the Affordable Care Act uh, was drafted with some ambiguity about how you evaluate whether your employer-sponsored insurance is affordable. Uh, for an individual, it's straightforward. If your employer-sponsored insurance uh, costs you out of pocket more than 10% of your income, it's it's viewed as unaffordable. You're allowed to go to the ACA um, exchanges and get subsidies to buy individual coverage. Uh, if you're married and you're on a family plan, uh, it, it was less clear. And it, and the IRS interpreted it as saying, well, we're going to have the, the, uh, the uh, rules apply only for individuals. And that meant that uh, you couldn't take the kids or or the spouse and have them go to off to the ACA and get subsidized coverage. They could go buy it if they wanted, but um, it basically was a family glitch. The proposal is to there are about five million people affected by this, and the proposal is to have the Treasury do a rulemaking, which would interpret uh, the ACA absolutely symmetrically: ten percent of your family income or less. It's affordable. If it's more, you go take the whole family, go to the ACA, get the subsidies, buy coverage. So. Um, that's, that's the fix for the family glitch. As I said, there's about 5 million people out there supposedly affected. Uh, they expect that about a million people will migrate from employer sponsored insurance into the ACA exchanges. And that'll be a net increase in the, the total coverage of about 200,000 Americans. So these are not enormous numbers by the standards of, uh, health insurance coverage, but, um, you know, they, they had a big, uh, celebration for, for this event and, um, you know, for me, the, the major question that, that the whole thing raised was, if this is such a big deal that you bring back former President Barack Obama to celebrate the Treasury doing a rulemaking to fix it, why didn't the Treasury do a rulemaking back when Barack Obama was president and Joe Biden was vice president and fix this a decade ago? I don't understand. So um, to me, it, it seems like the, the legal uh, justification might be weak. This could potentially be contested in the course and the rulemaking tossed out. We, we will see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like an odd anniversary to celebrate 12, right? I mean, that doesn't seem like 
something I generally celebrate 12 as a, as a number, as a big number. But what about the entire law? The, the president, uh, the president certainly hailed um, a long list of the ACA's achievements. What have we learned about the Affordable Care Act over the past 12 years? Well, I, I think we learned about what we expected. Um, if you spend enough taxpayer money, you can cover more Americans with health insurance. There's no question about that. Um, there's been uh, a back and forth within the ACA's um, law on the, the regulations that implement it to sort of see just how cookie cutter that insurance will be. Uh, Presidents uh, Obama and Biden have uh, really chosen to interpret it as a very, very cookie cutter operation. This is what constitutes good insurance to take it. Uh, the Trump administration was much more aggressive in, in coming up with short term duration plans and uh, other approaches to, to individual market coverage that provided a lot more flexibility, lower lower premiums, but but not as extensive coverage. And, and so it, it's really been a case that the ACA put a, a, a lot of structure on uh, insurers and really the, the price of getting that coverage and the, and the money was to be regulated like a utility. Interesting. All right. In other healthcare news, uh, an op-ed in Monday's uh, New York Times, I know, got your attention. Um, it warned of a disastrous consequences for Medicaid recipients when the pandemic support um, related support ends. Um, this sounds like a huge problem, but you say, you know, we need to take a deep breath and dig beneath the talking points on this one. What, what did you mean? It's pretty simple. During the pandemic, um, as one of the many emergency measures, uh, the, the federal government told the states, don't bother checking on eligibility for Medicaid. Usually there's an, an annual review that checks everyone and says, okay, you are eligible when we signed you up. Are you still eligible? And if not, then they have to leave the roles and, and go get private insurance. Um, th that stopped happening. So people who are now affluent enough to not qualify for Medicaid coverage are still on Medicaid. Article is really about the consequences of actually starting those reviews again, finding those people and saying, you know, you're done with Medicaid, please move on. And I think that, you know, that's not a tragedy. That's a good news story, right? They're, they're no longer on the social safety net. They're, they're able to get employer-sponsored insurance or individual coverage on their own. And we shouldn't fear that moment. Uh, it's just enforcing the rules. That's what the rules are there for. Let's turn to the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Fed told us um, this week that that the central bank could start reducing its balance sheet soon and at a rapid pace. We also learned that uh, interest rates hikes uh, could come at a more aggressive pace than the typical 0.25% uh, 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 increments. What's your take on this? Well, as everyone knows, inflation is a very, very important uh uh, economic issue right now, probably the top economic issue in the U.S., big political issue. Uh, the Fed is objectively way behind the curve on this. Uh, one way to think about it is the gap between real interest rates, nominal interest rates, which are essentially zero minus inflation, and the inflation rate is the largest since the early 1970s when inflation took about a decade to, to get under control. So uh, the Fed has, in recent weeks, been talking much more hawkishly about their actions to get this under control. I, they've been accused of being late, and I think that's a fair uh, criticism. But first, Chairman Powell said 50 basis points is certainly not off the table. It's on the table. Um, led everyone to believe that they were going to start with 50. Uh, that, that's probably right. Uh, he also said that they were going to get to neutral, right? So imagine a real interest rate about zero or a little above. Um, 
as expeditiously as possible. That says not just one 50 basis point increase, but let's do a bunch and get there quick. Uh, so that laid the groundwork for rate increases. And, you know, that that in and of itself was was uh, the source of a lot of chatter for a while. And then this week, uh, Vice Chair Lael Brainerd um, started talking about the balance sheet. Now, remember, in, in the uh, uh, emergency uh, and for the year after, the Fed went out and purchased $120 billion a month in treasuries and MBSs. So they buy those things and essentially write a check and print the cash and push it out into the economy. So it's an enormous amount of, of liquidity out there in financial markets. What they want to do now is reverse that process, pare down the balance sheet, sell those things off, and in the process, pull some of that cash out, reduce the, the monetary stimulus. It's sort of been presumed that that would be something that was done at a leisurely modest pace and that the real attention would be on rates. Um, she basically woke everyone up by saying, we are going to diminish the, the balance sheet much more aggressively than coming out of the Great Recessive Recession. You know, inflation is a problem. We have to use all our tools. So now you've got uh, two ways to sort of put pressure on rates. Take some of the cash out that's, that's sort of keeping rates artificially low and raise rates directly. And, and that, that's a, a much more aggressive stance, really fighting an inflation threat um, if they follow through that way. So you mentioned inflation. So while we're there, I want to follow up on something we talked about, you know, last episode, um, and that's gas prices. Um, the Biden administration, while pointing out, you know, what, you know, pointing his finger at both Putin and big oil for the cost increases, um, is working to provide relief for Americans by tapping the strategic uh, petroleum reserve. Um, you know, we talked about what this might look like last time, but how has this announcement impacted the market? And, and, Will the drivers um, see much, you know, much of a difference at the pump? Well, the the big impact should happen at the announcement, because at that point, you are setting the expectations of all the traders out there in futures markets and futures contracts. And so you got to see the price impact on global crude immediately. I did some back of the envelope ca calculations. This is a, a million barrels a day. Global consumption is about a, 100 million barrels a day. So it's a 1% increase. Sort of the upper bound of what you're going to get out of that is a 10% reduction in, in crude oil prices, which would translate into less than a 10% reduction in gas prices. But, you know, something like that. And it should have happened already. So I don't know if you've filled up recently. You haven't seen a dramatic change in gas prices. You're not going to, right? This is small. Um, it's largely symbolic. It's the third time they've tapped the SPR. The first two you didn't notice. This one you're not going to notice either. The reality is that prices are set in a global market. That global market went through two years of losses uh, because of the, the suppressed demand for oil and as all the economies were shut down. On, when the economies reopened, we got big increases in that demand. All of the, the global suppliers were hesitant to open the taps quickly. That's expensive. They lost a lot of money in two years. They wanted to be convinced the demand was really back before they drilled new wells, supplied more oil. It looks like that's happening now. And this problem will solve itself over time. It just won't solve it overnight. And and that's the reality. Yeah. Um, all right. So finally, this week, uh, the Biden administration announced it would yet again uh, renew the pandemic related pause on student loan payments this time until August 31st. What are your thoughts? Oh, well, I just lost my mind when I heard this. Um, uh, I, I view this as just indefensible. 
the deferral has nothing to do with COVID. So it feels like a, just a complete abuse of their pandemic emergency authorities. It, it has really little to do with anything that's going on out there. Um, why now, right? Right now, the labor market is incredibly tight. Quits are at record rates. Um, there's 1.7 jobs for everybody looking for a job. Uh, you have student loans because you went to college. And if you went to college, the unemployment rate among the college graduated is 2% right now. If you can't work and pay your loans now, when will they be able to? And, and so will there ever stop being a deferral? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Um, we also know that the people who benefit from this are disproportionately the affluent. You know, it's not the case that the people who have a lot of student debt are uh, low-skilled workers. Uh, it's people who went to law school. It's people who went to, to medical school and they are employed, making a lot of money and they can pay their, their student loans back. So I, I don't understand it um, on the merits. I'm thoroughly convinced that it's either just fuzzy thinking or political pandering or some sort of internal politics on the left. And I, I fully believe that when we get to August 31st, the president will extend it past the election uh, to December 31st. And that'll be that. Yeah. And, and I'll lose my mind again. So that's, <laughs> that, that's it. I think one of your tweets was picked up in the New York Times this morning or something like that. Yes, a cry of existential pain. <laughs> <laughs> that's all it was. <laughs> I mean, on that note, I mean, it's likely going to get extended again, as you mentioned, because of the election season. Nobody's going to want to deal with it then. But progressive Democrats in Congress are pushing the president to pro provide blanket student loan forgiveness of up to $50,000. Um, I'm certainly not an economist, but this doesn't seem like the best policy idea. What's your take here? I don't understand the attraction. I genuinely don't. Um, so the, the deferral costs a lot of money, right? So it's about $5 billion a month, maybe a little less. So if we do this to the end of the year, we're at, you know, we're at $40 billion of additional taxpayer costs from just deferring the repayments. We spend about $30 billion a year on Pell Grants. So if you spend that $30 billion, you get something. People go to college, they learn something, our, our labor force is better educated, the nation benefits. We get nothing for this $40 billion, nothing. So it doesn't seem like a good idea. Excusing it entirely, forgiveness, again, we get nothing. We don't send more people to college. We don't have the people who are in college learn more. We don't get any payoff from that uh, education spending. I would prefer that we spend the money, if we're going to spend an education on things that generate a result. And so... Uh, I, I don't see why we are sending the message that if you borrow money, you don't have to pay it back. I mean, imagine if every federal loan started to, to be perceived that way and you don't bother paying back your federally insured mortgage. You don't bother paying back your farm loans. You don't just I mean, it's it's a terrible lesson, in my view, and, um, and and doesn't seem to have any good policy rationale. So I'm not a fan. All right. Well, I look forward to our conversation after the August 31st gets extended where you get to lose your mind again. Um, and we have the same conversation again. Yes. Our listeners will probably hear me in real time as I just bellow into the void. I mean, it's just it's it's very frustrating. Well, Doug, thanks for joining us today. Um, it's great. Another great uh, thanks for breaking down everything. Another great podcast. Um, and I'm looking forward to our next one, which would be episode 100. I cannot wait. A big celebration. All right. Thanks, Doug. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, 
or Google Play.